I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, Dan Molitor, to the show. Welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to have you on the show today because we're going to be talking about a couple of different a couple of different attractions that I feel don't get as much love as they they did at the time that they were released. So let's start out with Alien Encounter and your introduction into this specific project. You know, because this one in particular, I feel is is loved more than ever now <laughs> since it's not there uh, which is a shame well, <laughs> alien encounter is probably loved now more than it was when it opened up it was not the most popular attraction ever to arrive in the magic kingdom there were several things that um didn't quite work with the attraction one of the the key things is that it it just didn't fit into the magic kingdom um it, with 2020 hindsight it probably would have worked okay in the studio tour because that it could have been a little edgier there and it would have fit in a little better. Um, there was a lot of talk about whether or not it would work in the magic kingdom. Um, a lot of people were concerned about that. There was a lot of talk about how scary it should be, whether it should be toned back, whether it should be something more like the haunted mansion where it's more just kind of silly fun. Um, but you know, it was worth a shot. <laughs> and, um, we gave it our best. I think also another reason, if I am correct, is Michael Eisner had asked his teenage son, you know, what do you like about Magic Kingdom? And his teenage son said, well, there's really nothing for any, you know, anything, you know, related to something that a kid of my age would be interested in. And and he does well, make a good point. That's true. And certainly that was uh, a concern in Imagineering at the time. You have to understand, too, that um, Alien Encounter had a long history, and originally it was set for Disneyland. Uh, with regards to the whole teenage thing, that was very definitely on our mind. In fact, there were huge discussions that went on for months and months about whether or not we should even give the attraction a rating. And this would be the first attraction that would sort of have the Disney version of a PG-13 rating. Um, that ended up going away it felt like that opened a door that nobody really wanted to open mm -hmm. um but but that was certainly on everybody's mind as to who this thing was really for and um how everybody else would react to it certainly when um we opened the attraction originally we emphasized repeatedly that look this you know the operations guys really shouldn't let in little kids this isn't for <laughs> little children um, but that was just sort of antithetical to the way that that park operated. And so it was very tough to figure out how to make that work uh, without actually signing it like a PG-13. Um, so it was it was pretty complicated. It, it could have worked. Um, unfortunately, it was kind of a classic case of too many cooks in the kitchen. And we didn't do as good a job on the attraction as we should have. Um, I don't think that's the case, though, in, in a fan opinion. I think initially, from what I understood and read, was that it was supposed to tie in with the film Alien. Is this correct? Well, yeah. Tammy, let's go back to the very beginning, how this thing started. Because there's been a lot of misinformation about this show. Go way, way back, before it became an official project. Um, during the time when Disney was working with Lucas, uh, they had just done Captain EO, Star Tours uh, was set to open. There were more discussions about what could we do with George Lucas. And it just so happened that a big brainstorming storm meeting was set up and Randy Bright was there and Tom Fitzgerald was there and Marty was there and all the, the bigwigs were there. 
and George Lucas was there. And as part of that discussion, uh, someone brought up the topic of binaural sound and what you could do with binaural sound. And I don't remember who it was. I don't know who, who it was. It was probably one of the Imagineering guys because that was something that was big at the time. And so everybody started brainstorming an idea about, oh, what could you do with binaural sound? And for those of you who don't know what binaural sound is, it's a very specific way of recording audio such that it recreates the exact sound waves that you would hear inside your head as if you were really there. And in fact, it's recorded with a big full-sized head with microphones in the ears. So it, it's really um, very uh, realistic and recreates the 3D space around you. So anyway, they were talking about this and an idea came up that, hey, what if we had an alien monster of some kind and it got loose and then we turn the lights out and that was it. That was the gem of the idea, the germ of the idea. And it really didn't go any further than that. There was no money. There was no budget to continue developing it. Um, Lucas went away, kind of lost interest, um, and there was nothing more to the, to the project. But Tom Fitzgerald, who at the time was a, a writer and creative uh, guy, um, championed the project and convinced Marty to give him a little bit of seed money to develop it further, which he did. Over the next few months, he developed it. He kept being the champion for this little show. Meanwhile, the studio tour project was getting started, um, and he was getting really involved in that. But he took it to a level where it was a high concept. Um, it was placed inside the old Mission to Mars attraction, which at that time was really dated and needed to be replaced, and this seemed like a cool little fit for that. So he, he had taken it to the level where the basic concept was there. It was going to be an alien monster that gets loose in this demonstration of teleportation and the lights were going to go out and everyone was going to get scared with binaural sound. And Gil Kepler did a couple of great uh, concept pieces of the main show that featured both sort of a generic creature and the 20th Century Fox alien. Because at that time, uh, because of the studio tour project, Disney was trying to get involved with other IP, trying to bring those into the studio to lend some real heft to that project. So one of the things that Tom put in there was a concept that would use the alien um, IP. So Sigourney Weaver was going to be in there as an AA figure. Uh, the whole setup was going to be with the evil corporation from the Alien series. And it was, of course, going to be the actual alien creature itself that got out. That was just one version of the show. If for some reason Disney couldn't get the IP uh, from 20th Century Fox, there was a generic version of the show that was kind of the same structure, but it, was, it, it just didn't use those characters. So it didn't really start with the alien, uh, the 20th Century Fox alien, but that character, that IP was included in a potential uh, version of the show right from the start. So ultimately, um, the decision was made to go with a generic version of the show. And mind you, all of this is taking place sort of under the radar. At, that, at this point, the, it wasn't an official project. This is just something that Tom kept championing. Um, every time he had the opportunity, he would pitch, hey, what about that alien show? We could do that. Um, so finally, the, um, the project to revamp Tomorrowland in Disneyland came along. And that was the perfect opportunity to fit this into the attraction that it was meant to go into, the old Mission to Mars show. Um, and that was really its first incarnation. Um, and, and again, that was to take place at Disneyland 
what happened was uh, at the stage when Tom was still just sort of championing the show uh, under the radar, um, he brought me on board to actually write the first treatments for it. He had done some work, and he had certainly um, uh, developed the basic structure of the show with the pre-show and the main show as it fit into the Mission to Mars attraction, um, but hadn't, hadn't put anything on paper, really. He had some key concept arts from Gil Kepler, which were terrific, um, but he needed to sort of document things to get it ready to turn it into a real project. So he brought me on fairly early. Um, I, you know, listened to him pitch the show. In fact, I think I have a recording of him pitching the show to some group at Imagineering. Um, I started developing a full-blown treatment, um, several different versions of it. We went through gazillion versions of the show. Um, some of them started getting very detailed. And then when it was finally uh, given the green light to go at Disneyland, that's when we actually went to full script and uh, scripted it to time and worked out how the sequence would work between the pre-show and the, the first show and then the, the main show. That all sort of got um, packaged up and put on hold when the Disneyland project um, was canceled. Um, but it very quickly picked up again about a year later, I think, uh, when the Florida project came on. So we had all this material, um, but it wasn't until a couple years after those initial um, uh, concept treatments were done that it really became a real project. And then the whole team was put together and we started developing the effects and the characters and uh, and, and the final script. Now, with that being said, the original voice of the robot was Phil Hartman, and then he was later replaced by Tim Curry. I, I don't remember the timing on this. Do you recall? Okay, sure. <laughs> all too well. <laughs> so all along, there was this different sort of version going on as to how you could do it. Phil Hartman's performance, if you've ever seen it, it's on YouTube, guys. You can check it out. Um, it was hysterically funny. It was really good. And the neat thing about it is that Skippy, the little alien critter, comes out as the hero of that show, which was our intent. In the end, he uh, survives, and it's the robot who short circuits, which to us made perfect sense because that let people know that, oh, the stuff you're going to see inside in the main show is being run by guys who are pretty evil, but they're pretty incompetent, too. That was the original intent of the show. You were supposed to know that, okay, whatever happens in there, it's run by these guys who aren't out to kill you. They're just incompetent at what they do. Okay, So that sets a totally different tone. Did Phil get to see the attraction with his, his interpretation in it? Or? I do not believe so. No, I don't think he ever went down there. Um, we actually recorded Phil. Um, in a, he was in a studio in New York, and we were in Glendale at the time. We had visuals. We had um, video of the uh, the animatronic character that we were using. So he knew the character and he knew the setting. But it was really, for him, it was really just kind of a quick one-day job. And I have to say, he just did an incredible performance. I, I absolutely loved it. Um, to be honest, um, the pre-show, in whatever form, uh, in terms of the effects, were actually better than the main show. The main show... It, it is some amazing equipment that got that character up and down so fast. And the liquid crystal thing that, that blocked out the, the, the teleportation tube was great. But in the Skippy scene, that all of that was combined with this really terrific mirror gag 
that just made it so magical. I mean, you just couldn't figure out how that little critter got away because you could see right through the tube below it. So you know he couldn't be going up and down, and there was nothing up above it. So you just couldn't figure out how he went away. And it was such a simple little gag. But it just it was a wonderful effect that when you saw it for real, just you know, your eyes just said, Whoa, <laughs> how mm-hmm. did they do that? Yeep. So when you got to go on set and actually see the, the film portion, what was it like to see that come together? Tyra, this was her first real um media job. Um, Jerry deliberate one of his ideas what he was which I thought was great was that he wanted the alien company to have their version of a spokes model and who better to do that than Tyra Banks um, but this was the first job she ever did um, I think um, so she was a, a newbie and she was kind of you know wide-eyed at the whole thing and of course she was wearing this big green watermelon on her head um, but it was the first time she ever had to loop dialogue and the first time on the set but she was a total pro Really just a total pro. One thing, when we had the Disney photographer on the set, um, he was in awe of Tyra Banks. And being a photographer, he was kind of keen on photographing her. So at one point in between takes, she walks over off the set and is on the side of the stage. And he says, hey, can I take some shots of you in your costume? And she says, sure, no problem. So he starts doing an instant impromptu fashion shoot. And she just instantly, like a like a thoroughbred racehorse, just gets into position and starts doing different poses and is so cool and sexy and alien and strange. And afterwards, the photographer came back to me and said, man, that was the greatest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and he, he was so happy. <laughs> but she was just a total pro, you know, um, and she obviously went on to do great things. Kathy Najimi and Kevin, uh, they were terrific to work with. Kevin was always making jokes on the set. Um, he had a particular line that he would always use whenever the sound, the, the warning buzzer would go off on the set, um, which I can't remember, but which always cracked everybody up. The fun thing about the shoot was that once they got into it, all of the actors from Tyra all the way up, um, they really got into the characters and it was fun seeing them work in character. Because even when the camera stopped rolling and uh, they were off the set, they still, you know, they were wearing this ridiculously heavy makeup. Um, and <laughs> yes. it, 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 they stayed in character and they were pretty good at it. When we were first developing Skippy, um, Gil Kepler had done a, a, in his original concept sketches a, a strange little kind of kangaroo animal. And that's where the Skippy name came from originally. But it wasn't really developed. It was just a few brushstrokes and wasn't a full-fledged character. When we got into the original development of the show, a guy named Andy Gaskill, who at the time was uh, working for uh, feature animation, Disney animation, he, we hired him and he did some sketches for us, both of Skippy and the creature. And his first sketch of Skippy was on target. It just nailed it. Perfect. And the creature that we built, the animatronic figure that we built, was exactly what Andy put on his sketch. And it was a lovely little character. You could just see, you know, the animators would look at it and say, oh, man, I can do so much with this little character. And the, the, the guys who were, you know, those of us who were writing the show thought, oh, yeah, he's really great. And the sound effect guys were getting all excited because he could make these fun little yeep sounds that could be really funny. And... The guy who did his voice, Danny Mann, just did a fabulous job bringing him to life. So we all got really excited about it, except a couple of key players at Imagineering. 
but we stuck with our guns on that. And Skippy was so popular, most people liked the Skippy pre-show better than they liked the main show. Maybe it wasn't as intense, maybe it wasn't as thrilling or whatever, but in terms of the character and the Disney quality of it, most people liked that pre-show better. And the bulk of that was due to that Skippy character. It was just so perfect and so right on target. And had we not stuck to our guns on that, and had we made it some other sort of Muppety thing, it wouldn't have been as good. I have one of the original prototype Skippy plushes that I will oh. never part with. I will take it to my grave. Oh, by the way, another key thing I, I do like about the new version besides, of course, um, it it you know brings back Skippy. Richard, Richard Kind is the voice yeah. of the new robot, and he just delivers, you know, any role he plays he basically is just he steals the show so yeah i I, I love his i love his interpretation what's interesting too is that um i i thought all there's been three versions now of that robot the original one uh with phil hartman which was for budget reasons essentially just a naked animatronic figure with some plastic stuck on it here and there (laughs) and the cool laser eyes which was the first time we had done that Um, but that's basically all it was um, and Phil went with that and made it his own and it became a really cool character. Tim Curry took that same figure, a few modifications, made it a little more sinister and voiced it, did a fabulous job and made it a terrific character. Richard did the same thing with the, the Lilo and Stitch show, same figure, basically few modifications, um, but made it his own through a great performance. And so I don't know who directed that or who did that particular show. I think it was Rick Rothschild who did that. Um, but fabulous example of how you can turn a machine into a character by paying attention to little things and making sure the performance is good so that the animators have something to work with. It's, it's like apples and oranges when you're comparing all three, which I would encourage our listeners to go ahead and check out. Phil's, then Tim's, and then Richard's, because they all deliver you know, they all yeah. fully 110% deliver. Well, let's talk about the next project, Buzz Lightyear, because yeah. we we actually have, I I have film footage of us riding this attraction for the first time in 99 <laughs> when it just opened. So, and my dad is saying by the end of it, he's like, what a great ride. You know, so it, <laughs> we, we, we have so, so many fond memories of this attraction being opened. Um, so let's talk about Buzz and sure. bringing him to Tomorrowland because that is... Basically a no-brainer in my in my opinion. Yeah, it was a, a, again. It was a perfect example of an IP that just fit in perfectly with the sort of happy Disney version of the future. And the fact that he's a toy just makes it all that much more playful and fun. And the TV um, series too, because you guys have that mural. Originally, it yeah. was still there. I don't think it's there. It wasn't there when I was in January, but it had the. The you know the characters from the TV sh- yeah. TV series that I used to watch, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the original attraction benefited from having a really terrific team. Um, Paul Osterhout, who you know, and myself, and Chuck Ballou, who was the show designer on it, worked really well together, and we were all really good at what we did. Um, Tom Fitzgerald, to his credit, pushed everyone. He wanted it to be the first shooting gallery type show. Uh, other versions of it had been come up where, where it was much more of just a traditional dark ride. And Tom, to his credit, said, you know, let's push this. Let's do this thing with the guns. 
And Paul really pushed that, and we all really pushed it. It's really simple. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about it is that it's such a simple show. Great character, and you're in a shooting gallery that moves. Putting the interactive element into it kind of changed that a little bit. Because once you put a gun in someone's hand, it's all about shooting. <laughs> and the story really doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> and so it's there as a backdrop, but it really can't get in the way of the shooting. And that was a valuable lesson that that attraction taught everybody. Um, that it can't be too complicated. It's got to be really simple if you're going to have the audience responding to it and acting in it and interacting with it in some way. Um, and I think we pulled that off fairly well. Designs that Chuck did and the characters that he developed and the sets that he developed were just lovely spaces to be in. They were fun and colorful and exciting and filled with all kinds of places to put little stickers that you can shoot at. And then the character of Zerg is so outrageous and crazy that, you know, he makes a perfect Disney villain. You know, you don't mind shooting at him because he's silly and funny and um, and yet he's so over the top outrageous that, you know, when he when he finally shows up for real, it's just an amazing scene that uh, really uh, I don't know. It's it's probably one of the best things I've ever done. Um, and certainly it's the one that I'm most proud of. And I'm glad that it was kind of cloned for the other parks. The original Buzz Lightyear attraction was a fantastic example of how you can retrofit an idea into an existing facility from the uh, Delta Dream Flight. And before that, if you had Wing Show, were pretty much kept intact. The spinning room was the where you're getting shot with the laser blast. That was the jet engine of the Delta jet <laughs> that you were flying into. We just changed the effect a little bit. The speed room that you go into on either side, that was part of the original attraction. We just changed the media. All the layouts of the sets and the scenes were all based on the existing layout. So it was a great example of how you can retrofit in a different experience into a building, a facility, and tra totally transform it into something new. Because nobody realized, except the hardcore geeks, nobody knew. <laughs> because they were so caught up in the characters and the action that it just all worked. So when you were working on that specific attraction, um, did you contact Tim Allen and say, can you please voice buzz? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Here, here's the funny Tim Allen story. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> um, we did, in fact, contact Tim Allen. This would, would have been the first time that he would have been in a Disney park. Um, we heard through his agent that um, he would have required a percentage of the gate. <laughs> Which, if you know anything about the numbers of people that go into a Disney park, that would have been a huge sum. And it would have been a precedent that Disney did not want to set. Um, so we very quickly decided that we couldn't use um, Tim Allen. So we used his brother. If, and if he's listening now, no, no, no problem. <laughs> it was just fine. It was just one of those things. So right from Buzz Lightyear, you go into, well, actually at the same time, was it Rock and Roller Coaster happening? Because Rock and Roller Coaster came out in 98 and Buzz came out in 99. So were you working on both yeah. of those at the same time? I I had actually just a little to do with Rock and Roller Coaster. Um, the core of the idea had been around a long time, which was put music on board a roller coaster. Hey, that's it. Um, and the there was the title, Rock and Roller Coaster. Everyone thought, oh, wow, that's a great title. We got to have that. Um, Paul and I were did uh, a bunch of high-concept sessions, and we pitched the, the idea to Michael and Frank. Uh, 
or was it just Michael at that time? I guess it was just Michael at that time. Um, and so beyond that initial concept work and then pitching it to Michael Eisner, I really didn't have anything to do with the attraction. Once it got the green light, um, Kevin Rafferty uh, stepped in as the head writer and he really took over. Um, so really all that Paul and I were uh, doing is selling the idea of having onboard audio and having a name talent band associated with it. And that was harder than you might think to sell because we kept getting the feedback from the guys at Hollywood records and from Eisner himself saying that, Oh, but you know, kids today don't listen to, you know, the, the classic old bands, they listen to green day and all these other, you know, names that Paul and I <laughs> didn't know who they were. <laughs> um, and we kept saying, no, 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 it's gotta be Aerosmith or it's gotta be the Rolling Stones, you know, something like that. And so it took a lot of, uh, uh, convincing to get them to go with a classic rock and roll band uh, because that's what the attraction was all about and that's what the audience that goes to that park is all about. My last Disney project sort of spanned the time when I was still an employee and then when I was a freelancer. Um, Imagineering was hired to do a children's museum in Baltimore called Port Discovery and I headed up the creative team on that uh, to develop the exhibits and the experiences inside this brand new kids museum. Um, and that got me really interested in the museum world. So my time after Disney has been spent doing mostly museum work and theme park work all mixed together, probably 50, 50. So I've developed new museums. I've developed museum exhibits, a few theme park things. Like I was working on a big project in Korea for the past couple of years, a couple of things in China. Um, couple things in Saudi Arabia. Um, but really, it's been a, a mixed bag of stuff. Um, and frankly, I've really enjoyed it, that too. I have no regrets about leaving Disney. I have no regrets about my time at Disney either. It was fantastic. Um, but I really have enjoyed my career outside the mouse. It sounds like you're doing well, though. I'm very happy to hear that. But like, what what's the most recent book that you've written? Maybe we can check it out on Amazon and put it in the show oh, notes? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Check out my page on Amazon.com. Look me up. I've got a couple novels, got several novelettes. Um, they're available in e-editions as well as regular old printed editions. I'm currently working on a graphic novel. Um, uh, it's a personal story about uh, me and my dad and what happened to him during the Korean War that sort of uh, made him the person that he was. Um, he just passed away a few years ago, so it's a very personal um, project for me that I'm all excited about and looking forward to getting out there, hopefully in about a year or so. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, I've got a couple archaeological novels that are pretty good and actually make money. So I have been very blessed in my career. I started out at Disney, got the best possible education I could possibly get with regards to themed entertainment, um, learned a lot as a writer, um, have been able to make a living, um, you know, for me and my family as as a writer and creative director of themed entertainment projects. Um, so yeah, I have I, I have been blessed in that regard. I'm quite happy with it all. Yep. <laughs> and, and before we end, I have three Disney-themed questions I ask each of my guests. I call them the Fab Three. Sure. So okay. we'll start with the Donald one, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Uh, it would have to be The Love Bug. And our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? 
It would have to be Eeyore. And our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? I suspect, given my childhood, that it would actually be um, from the Mickey Mouse Club. It's probably the theme song from the Mickey Mouse Club. Thank you very much for being on the show, Dan. This was so much fun. I, I, I hope we can talk again soon because you just are filled with all these interesting stories. And I'm so glad I had you on the show today. It was a, it was a real blast. Well, thank you for having me. And um, again, there's, uh, it's always nice to uh, have an opportunity to correct misinformation that I see out there on the interwebs. <laughs> um, so I hope, uh, I hope this has been an opportunity to do some of that. Disintegration into molecular components. Don't worry, it's practically painless. <laughs>